Thanks, Jonathan. Love hearing your story, man. So the past few weeks, we have been talking about some of the most common objections to the Christian faith and faith in Christ. We've talked about questions like, can we trust the Bible? Uh, Is there only one true religion? And how can a good God send people to hell? And for some of you, these may be your objections to faith. These may be your obstacles to placing your faith in Christ. Uh, For others of you, you've encountered friends or coworkers uh, who hold these objections, and these are are obstacles for them to believing in Christ. But yet, others of you, I imagine that as you walk with the Lord and you meet other people, that they will have some of these objections that we've been talking about these past few weeks. So tonight, I'll be addressing the question, does Christianity restrict freedom? And I'll admit, this is a hard one to answer because the, the way that this question is framed really only gives you one of two options. It's a yes or no. And approaching this question, does Christianity restrict freedom with a yes or no answer, there are very good reasons why you might go one direction or another, why you might say yes or no. Now, before we start, I just want to point out an assumption with this question, that, that something this question is put up on a pedestal In American culture, freedom is seen as the ultimate good. Our view of freedom has been twisted, though. In Scripture, freedom or liberty, the words that we translate into freedom and liberty, are primarily in contrast to slavery. So when the Bible talks about freedom, it's primarily uh, freedom from something that once held you captive. So let's look at how the Apostle Paul views spiritual freedom and spiritual slavery. So would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6? And once you get there, we'll start in verse 16. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just come before you realizing that that we are slaves, um, that we're slaves to sin, or we're slaves to righteousness. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to learn from you, what we are held captive to. And I pray that you'd be with me as I speak tonight, um, that my words would be your words, um, and that, that what I'm speaking would, uh, would resonate with everyone in this room. In your name, amen. So does Christianity restrict freedom? Who says that you actually have freedom in the first place? Not Paul. Paul says, he says that you are slaves of the one whom you obey. And he says, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So he kind of puts it in these two terms. He puts it in, you're slaves of sin or you're slaves of righteousness. Uh, So let's reframe our question with that in mind. Everyone is a slave to something. You serve a master. 
Does the master that you serve lead you to life, or does it lead you to death? What we look to to find fulfillment can show us what or who our master is. So tonight, I'm going to bring us face to face with three, with five deceitful masters. And you may already be well acquainted with them. I'll show you how they fall short of what they mm -hmm. promise. And at the end, we'll look at Jesus and how he is a better master who is worth following. So the first of the five deceitful masters that I want you to meet tonight is sexual fulfillment. And you might also know this master as romantic relationships, pornography. The master of sexual fulfillment promises intimacy, being loved. Who doesn't want that? But what do you think it looks like to follow this master? When I was in college, this, actually, this was my master. I was continually in pursuit of a relationship. Freshman year, when I wasn't dating someone, I was swiping through Tinder, trying to find something, really anything. I kept it hidden from my friends. I knew what Tinder was for, and I knew that they knew what Tinder was for. And when, it, when I didn't have what I thought that I wanted, I spent all of my spare time trying to seek it out. I just couldn't help it. But after coming to Crew, uh, for a while, I decided that this avenue wasn't good for me if I was going to follow Jesus. But still, sexual fulfillment was still my master. I started dating a girl during my sophomore year, um, and this relationship took first priority in my life. I was sold on the idea that this person would fulfill all of my desires, that they would make me happy. Uh, so when we weren't we spent all of our time together, and even when we weren't together, we spent all of our time texting or Snapchatting or whatever social media uh, platform that we were on. Uh, we were always in communication. And, and this relationship just consumed a lot of my life. But I was happy. I felt fulfilled. Um, that was until we broke up. And then I felt like my life was over. I begged God to let me have a do-over, to fix my mistakes and try again. And it was a long time until I felt okay with letting that relationship go. Practically speaking, that relationship was my God, and I was trapped. The master of sexual fulfillment promised me intimacy, but only in future fulfillment or temporary fulfillment. Even if I were to have married that girl, I think at some point I would grow disenchanted with what I felt at first, or she would disappoint me and fail to live up to my expectations. So let's talk about a different form that sexual fulfillment this master can take. Uh, there are so many men, and women aren't excluded from this, but I think that there are a lot of men who are enslaved to this master in the form of pornography. Uh, viewing on a screen others engaging in sexual acts and wishing that that was them. This master draws you in holds you captives with feelings of false intimacy. You watch in secret, hoping that your roommate or your parents don't walk in on you. You know that it's wrong and that you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing, but you just can't help it. Afterward, you feel ashamed and empty, and you continue to hide what you've been looking up, and the cycle just continues. This might be what it looks like to be enslaved to the master of sexual fulfillment. Intimacy is promised, but it's it's just out of reach. It's temporary or it's manufactured to look like intimacy. So next, I want you to meet the master of success. 
This master can also be known as wealth, achievement, or status. Success promises this. It says, work hard now so that you can get the life that you want later. One of my childhood best friends, he grew up in a family whose master was success. For context, his dad was an accountant. They started with a, a modest house and they didn't live too far away from us, but eventually moved just out of the city. They bought a plot of land, they built their own house, they bought fancy ATVs, they bought a camper, they, they bought some really nice cars. And when the, the first like Playstations came out, my friend was one of the first kids to get it. When I came over to hang out, I thought that this was the coolest thing ever. There was always something new to play with or to do. His dad continued to climb the corporate ladder, earning more and more, and their lives just seemed to get better and better. But do you know what I don't remember about those times? I don't remember his dad ever being there to hang out with us. Eventually, his parents got a divorce, and my friend resented his dad for the choices that he made. So what's so deceptive about having success as your master is that there's always a little bit more of the ladder left to climb. Sure, yeah, you can be successful, you can achieve that, but what is it going to cost you? But what about, let's, let's talk for a second about those who have reached the top. You think about famous actors or CEOs or multi-billionaires, you would look at them and you would say, man, that guy, they have made it. Most of them, I think most of them fall into one of two categories. Either they are still looking for the next thing, meaning that they don't, they personally, they don't believe that they've made it yet. Or they're incredibly lonely or depressed because achieving their dreams was not what they hoped for. Many of them turned to drug abuse and some have just decided that living isn't really worth it anymore. Now next up is the master of image. The promise that image as your master makes is if you behave in a certain way that you will be worthy of the affection of others. And this is not to say that the opposite is better, uh, essentially saying that uh, what I do is the standard uh, and that everyone else needs to learn how to deal with me. That there, in that, there's a pride and arrogance that says that your image is the standard and that your love of your image is really your master. But I think the former is most common, that around certain people, you need to act the part or you won't be welcomed with them. That there's a certain insecurity always in the back of your head that's saying to you, you don't really belong here. If they knew the real you, they wouldn't want you. And I think that's what Jonathan saw in himself and, and saw in his friend uh, when he shared his 180 story just a minute ago. When you've given yourself over to this master for long enough, I think it might be hard for you to even recognize which part of you is the real you. You take on so many different identities because it's necessary for your acceptance that you lose sight of the original. In changing yourself or your behavior to make yourself acceptable, you're affirming to yourself that the real you truly isn't worthy of acceptance of anyone else. So now let's meet the master of pleasure. If you want to use a philosophical term, this master is better known as hedonism, which is the idea that pleasure or the satisfaction of desires is the highest good and the proper aim of the human life. The master of pleasure promises this. By indulging in your natural desires, you can find 
ultimate happiness. That basically, you just do whatever you want to do. This master is what leads you to procrastinate on homework until 11.30 at night, knowing that you, your assignment is due in 30 minutes. Or the reason that you spend hours and hours on end playing Fortnite with your buddies from high school until the sun starts to shine through your dorm room window and you suddenly realize that you have an 8 a.m. class and you're taking a quiz that you have yet to study for. If you didn't think that there was pleasure to be found in any of the masters that we're talking about tonight, or maybe there are others that have popped into your head um, while I've been speaking, but you wouldn't choose to follow those masters if you didn't think that you could find pleasure in following them. It's our own desires and our pursuit of pleasure that leads us into the slavery of one of these deceptive masters. Right now, my UCCS community group is studying the book of James, and verses 14 and 15 of James 1 actually sums up really well what I'm talking about. You don't need to turn there. Uh, we'll just be here briefly, but I think I have it on the screen. Uh, James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Have you felt the death of giving in to your own desires? Maybe it's fun in the moment, but, but does it really last? Is it really meaningful? I think what ends up happening is that you return to some of the same habits again and again, looking for the same feeling that you had the first time, only for those things to come up, to come up short and for you to walk away feeling disappointed. The reason that I, I say that vaguely is because I think that that can be a lot of different things. Alcohol and drug use fall into, the set, into that category just the same as an all-nighter of video games or sleeping around. The master of pleasure promises that you will feel good by giving in to whatever desires come naturally. The reality is that you're enslaved to your desires, even when you know that what you're doing isn't necessarily good for you. This last deceptive master, the next one that we're gonna talk about, it's not quite as obvious as some of the others. Um, but now, let me introduce you to the master of peace. This master is different than when you think of biblical peace, and I think it's easy to get the two confused. No, this master promises that you will be comfortable, that you will have a sense of control and orderliness, or free freedom from conflict in your relationships. This kind of peace as your master is probably one of the most dangerous, because when this is your master, you feel as though you're doing the right thing, and it doesn't hurt you to remain silent. In the name of peace, we let a friend continue to attach themselves to other masters. We let them look for life in the master of sexual fulfillment when we know that it will bring them death. We let them run after the master of success when we can clearly see the havoc it is wrecking on their family. We're happy to have fun with the image that our friend puts on, rather than asking deeper questions to know them or pointing out inconsistencies in their identities. And we are all too eager to affirm someone's pursuit of the master of pleasure by saying, yeah, whatever works for you is okay with me. We also tend to use the master of peace as a guide for our decision-making. Uh, when we conclude that something must be God's will because we felt peace about it, I don't know, that might be an indication that we aren't listening to the master that we think we are. Jesus called his followers to some challenging things. Some he asked, up to, asked to give up the master of money or the master of family in order to follow him. I can't imagine that following Jesus and giving up those things 
always resulted in a feeling of peace. I get it. It's easier to opt for a conflict-free relationship or a decision that makes you feel good, but that's, I think, why this master is so deceptive. In reality, conflict is sometimes necessary for peace, and sometimes following Jesus means doing something that is hard. If you're a Christian, your call isn't just to make peace between yourself and others. It's also to make peace between them and God. Your call is to help them see the deceitful masters in their lives and introduce them to the master who is better. And now that we have met five of the deceitful masters, let me introduce you to the true and better master. And now we're going to talk about how Jesus is the better master. What, what things does Jesus promise to those who follow him? Here, we'll, we'll talk about seven things that Jesus promises to those who follow him. And what I want is for you guys to determine which master is it that you're going to follow. The first thing, one of the things that Jesus promises to those who follow him is life. I'll read the couple of verses on the screen. Uh, John 10, 10, the thief comes only to kill, and steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is what we're looking for when we choose to follow any master. We're looking for life. Jesus promises life when we give up our pursuit of life in other places and instead choose to follow him. He won't share the throne of your life with another master. The second thing that Jesus promises to those who follow him is acceptance. This is what the master of image promises yet fails to deliver. Jesus knows the depth of your sin and rebellion against God, maybe even more fully than you yourself realize. Yet that doesn't drive him away from us, but instead it ignites his heart of compassion towards us. In John chapter 4, you see this reflected in the woman at the well, leaving her water pail after her interaction with Jesus and saying, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? For all of the reasons that Jesus would have had, whether it's socially, geographically, religiously, culturally, to treat the Samaritan woman with contempt or condemnation, that's not actually how he responded to her. Instead, he showed her compassion and acceptance, and he does so with us as well. Third thing that Jesus promises to those who follow him is reward. Mark 10, 29 through 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is similar to what is promised by the deceitful master of success. Jesus says that this reward is given to those who leave what they have in order to follow him. Not those who continually climb the ladder, grasping for more, but to those who lay down their life and follow in his footsteps. The fourth thing is revelation. John 14, 21. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Jesus is saying that he, he will make himself known to them. Uh, that's kind of what he means by manifest. Jesus says that to those who follow him, he will make himself known to them. All the arguments and proofs for God's existence, God's existence pale in comparison to actually experiencing a relationship with God through Christ. Following Jesus isn't like following a distant, heartless master. Following Jesus means that we get to experience the intimacy that we long for and seek out through the deceitful masters of image and sexual fulfillment. Fifth, Jesus promises friendship with God. John 15, 14, and 15, you are my friends if, I do what I, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You might be wondering why the verses on the screen say servant, and I read slave instead. If you remember the passage from Romans that we looked at uh, when we started, that word that's translated as slave and the word that's translated as servant here is the same word. Um, they use the same word to describe both of those things. Um, and so you could easily, just as easily, interchange the word slave uh, for the word servant. The same word that Paul uses there is the same word here. We are slaves of Christ, and we are happy to be called slaves of Christ. But that's not all that we are. Here, Jesus says that we are more than that, that we are called a friend of God himself. Man, talk about a status boost. Like, if that's true about you in Christ, and you actually believe that, you really have no need to look to other masters. You're already at the top. You're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Sixth, Jesus promises joy. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Our obedience to Christ says that we truly believe and follow him as our true and better master. To abide in his love is also to obey him and to give him everything. And he says, that these, he says these things that our joy may be full, that we may be filled with the joy of Christ. Last, Jesus promises trials. Matthew 5, 10 through 11 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And Paul, writing to his disciple Timothy, he echoes the same thing um, and echoes that this is still true. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And when you get down to it, following Jesus puts you at odds with the world. This persecution can vary in extremes. Uh, following Jesus is not without cost, though. It might mean that you will lose friends, family, jobs, opportunities, maybe even your life. This truth is partially why these other promises exist. It's as if God is saying, Follow, following me will be a struggle, but here are the things that I will promise to those who persevere. So I think the question becomes, 
which master are you going to follow? We've come a long way from the question, does Christianity restrict, free, restrict freedom? Every master that you follow will restrict you in some way. As Pastor Timothy Keller puts it, he says, in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. Following Jesus isn't free, but it, it comes at the cost of giving up your other masters. He won't share the throne of your life with something else. Is letting Jesus be your master worth it to you? Are you willing to give up your life so that you can find it in him? Let me pray. Lord, we come to you knowing that we give ourselves over to all kinds of different masters, and they go by different names. But we surrender those to you. We don't want to follow uh, these deceitful masters. We don't want to follow masters that aren't worth following, or that promise us uh, half-truths. But Lord, knowing that there is a cost in following you, I think it's worth it. I'm glad to be a slave of you, Jesus. So thank you for, for paying the price of my sin and rebellion, our sin and rebellion, and allowing us to, to be called your friend and to experience all that you've promised. In your name, amen.